0: And what's really important in my view is understanding people, working with people, being able to grow people, being able to understand what individuals goals are and find the right opportunities for them.
1: Hi and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership and strategy in the field of artificial intelligence, machine learning and data science. My name is Felipe Flores, I am your host. Thank you so much for coming and watching the show today. I hope that You, your friends, your loved ones, your colleagues are staying healthy during this pandemic. Please continue to stay home and also be grateful and look for the good in the situation that you are in. Even though we may have some challenges that we're facing at the moment, there are others that have it much, much worse. Try to calibrate your situation with uh, the gravity of how bad it could be. And I hope that you'll stay healthy and safe along with your family and loved ones. Today's episode, we speak with Rishal Urbans. He is the author of "Grokking Artificial Intelligence Algorithm, Uh, Groking is an explainer series from Manning. This is part of the partnership that we have with Manning, uh, where we interview authors that write books in artificial intelligence and data science. Uh, We have a code included in the show notes to get 40% off from the books. We don't get any kickbacks from that. So it's not an affiliate marketing play. It's just that they promote, they find and promote good authors that are usually people that are working in the field that create good content. And then Manning reaches out to convince them to write a book. You'll hear that theme through the interviews. Richelle, besides writing the book on AI algorithms, he is also an entrepreneur He works as a solutions architect in one of South Africa's. He's based in South Africa, and he works in one of South Africa's largest technology companies. And he started there when the company was quite small. So you'll hear him talk about how he got lots of responsibilities in the early days through that. He also founded and runs Artificial Intelligence South Africa, and that's a a meetup group which obviously means that he puts on the events. He also speaks at conferences and does a lot of work in, in AI with different players in the community. And obviously, he's got the book. So without further ado, here is the conversation with Richelle Urbans. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Today, I'm speaking with Rochelle Urbans. Richelle, thanks so much for coming on the show, mate. Thanks for making the time. How are you doing?
0: Thanks a lot for having me. I'm doing well on yourself.
1: Good, mate. Good. How's the lockdown treating you?
0: Yeah, it's going all right getting a lot of work done. So that's a good thing, I guess.
1: Yeah, right. A lot of our productivity time. Yeah, no, that's good to hear. I keep thinking like that we should remember how lucky we are in the sense that if we still have a job, if our loved ones and our family, and our friends are healthy, and mm. if we can stay indoors and get things delivered as much as possible, then we're really one of the, some of the lucky ones. And being at home is kind of like a minor inconvenience, putting things yeah. into, into perspective about how bad it could be. No, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know yeah, if, if, you, feel if you can be
0: productive at home, you're probably in the minority. A lot of people are, are suffering where we're. So as you said, it's just an inconvenience.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Well, glad to hear it's going okay for you. And productivity, increased productivity is um, kind of like the best out of a bad situation. So, mate, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in your journey into AI and data? What was the origin story for you in the space?
0: Okay, I think um, if we start at the beginning, I think like most or many people in the tech industry, I played games as a little kid. I really enjoyed them and I, I really wanted to get into tech because I wanted to make games. And it was always kind of fascinating playing against computers because back then they weren't multiplayer games. You kind of played against a computer and it would beat you a lot of the time. You know, that kind of interests me. How would you code that? So how would you make the computer that clever for the lack of a better word? Yeah.
1: Which games, sir?
0: I guess the classics. I mean, you're talking about Doom and Wolfenstein and those oh, kind man. of games from the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I was very fortunate that my dad was in IT and I was fortunate enough to have a computer at a a young age. So I got to kind of tinker around during vacations. He would take me to work. He wasn't a programmer, but he introduced me to some of his colleagues who kind of try to teach me or give me material to learn programming. So a funny story is my I think it was a school holiday and I, I wanted to make a first-person shooter game without any programming experience. So I found this application called Basic 4GL. So you coded in Basic and it had um, OpenGL kind of bundled with it. And basically, I copy pasted the example, which was a cube. And I literally laid the bricks using cubes to make a, a first person shooter world <laughs> It
1: performed terribly. And only years later, when I learned about loops, I was like, wait, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a commitment that gets you through so many challenges. I love that story, right? Well done. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So we did some programming in high school and then university is when when I learned most of the material or the information required to do interesting things with programming and computer science. But yeah, that interest kind of just stuck with me. I did some research work in that space, also using cellular automata. And yeah, I guess it was just an interest from a very young age and it just kind of carried with me. So in my professional career, I kind of look at problems and see if these techniques could be applicable in solving them effectively. Obviously, you don't try to just use a technique or use a technology just because you want to. It needs to be solving something real. So looking for those opportunities in the kind of work life.
1: That's really great, man. And from when you started working, can you give us a bit of an overview of your career? And then we can start talking about some of the challenges that you're facing at the different stages. But what's the timeline been for you? I guess it was
0: a motivator from my folks to kind of get work experience as quickly as possible, I guess. I mean, I've come to the view of getting experience. You can't really learn that out of a book. you got to kind of go through it. So I started working at a retail store, actually, in high school. So that taught me a lot about people. But from a more kind of relevant perspective, while I was studying, I worked as a programmer for about seven hours a day for about two years. And then I graduated and joined the company that I'm actually with at the moment. I've been there for about nine years now. I joined when they were very small. And I think I was, again, I don't know, lucky or maybe opportunistic. But I got to lead or take charge of many projects with not a lot of experience. Well, if you compare it to today today. I mean, a junior wouldn't necessarily be responsible for running an entire project. So I got, got a lot of opportunities at the start of my career, which actually helped me. I guess be accountable for more. When you're accountable for a lot more and the kind of a lot is resting on your shoulders, I feel like you perform a lot better. At least I did. I can't speak for everyone. I think everyone's different, but, um, I think that kind of, it's almost like a fight or flight instinct. You learn a lot, you get things done. Yeah. But yeah, in my career at intellect, I've been exposed to many different industries, finance, agriculture, mining, health, gaming. So I'm quite fortunate that I got the opportunity to kind of experience different contexts and different Business problems and different challenges and domains. So right now I'm filling the role of a solutions architect. A lot of my work is kind of requires me to have more of a generalist approach than a specialist approach. And what's really important in my view is understanding people, working with people, being able to grow people, being able to understand what individuals' goals are and find the right opportunities for them. Because when you are being quite general in solving problems, you have to rely on specialists or people who do have specialized skills in say mobile or cloud, whatever the case might be, to help you solve the problem efficiently, you can't know everything. So yeah, I think a big part of what I've come to realize is in the tech industry, it's not really tech, it's people or any industry for that matter, business, whatever you're trying to solve, it's not necessarily the tools you're using to solve that problem. In our case, it's tech. It's actually the people behind it. Because at the end of the day, you're serving people, Yeah, I think a lot of experience, you see a lot of teams or people get frustrated with perhaps uh, customers or maybe their managers or whatever the case might be. And it's usually not because someone's being malicious or they're being kind of uh, trying to be a bad person. It's usually because of constraints or context or something that you might not have sight of. And all of that stems from people. Maybe it's shareholders that are driving down a mandate. Maybe it's research that was done into the market market to determine what people actually need and what the customers actually want and a lot of the time teams don't have that kind of understanding and it's all 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 related to people someone has motive to do something and that's why you're required to do something or that's why they keep coming back with these issues and i think once you start understanding people how do we operate what motivates us And maybe get a kind of global understanding of the bigger landscape behind what we're doing, behind our project. How does that project fit into the bigger picture? How does that company fit into the bigger picture? How do the people in that company kind of fit in? What are their responsibilities? What are their motivators? Those kind of things, I think, once you understand it, it makes you more, I guess, effective at doing your work. But I also think, more importantly, it helps you build better solutions because you have that missing context that you otherwise Mm -hmm. wouldn't have
1: had. Where did this come from for you? Do you remember developing this perspective at a particular point with a particular project? Did it come slowly or was it there from before you started working? How did you develop that perspective of keeping in mind how things fit into or where things fit into the bigger picture?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like a talent or something magic like that. I think it's something that can be learned. I guess thinking back, I've always been quite optimistic. I believe you're always learning. No matter how much you know, you've still got lots more to learn. And even then, you'll never learn enough. You don't, just don't have the time to learn enough. But that shouldn't stop you from trying to achieve that, right? So know that you will never know everything, but still try and. Achieve that. And I think that open-mindedness, I think working through many projects and many solutions, many different scenarios, I kind of gained this intuition from those experiences over time. But I think the reason is because I've had an open mind about things, question why things are happening. So instead of just accepting it, ask why. Why is this person behaving this way? Or Why is this project taking twice the time we thought it would? Where did things go wrong? Or maybe things didn't go wrong. Maybe there were bad assumptions made. So I think asking why, having an open mind, having this mindset that every project or every kind of engagement you work on, there's more to learn from it than the technical angle. Like learn about the people, learn about the business, learn about that ecosystem. And then if you have that open mind and you keep asking why, you'll develop that intuition. Um, I must say some books also kind of help you gain that intuition. If you're looking at books that aren't necessarily technical, so I think books around psychology or user experience. User experience design, I guess from a data aspect, people might think they're very disjoint, but actually they're very related. A lot of the data that you're working with are based on people. And if you want to understand people, a lot of the principles in experience design help you kind of learn that. So I'd say to summarize, it's a combination of experience, Having that open mind and kind of looking at fields outside of your kind of technical expertise.
1: Yeah. And what what are some um, book recommendations that you would have, either on psychology or UX design or any of the non technical areas that you think will have really helped you?
0: I think a great book to get a a global view of us is humanity, I guess, which actually makes you question a lot and think a lot as sapiens. Sapiens is a great book about the history of how we've kind of evolved and how we've evolved technology to help us develop societies. Some other good ones, I guess in the psychology side, it's How to Build a Mind. It's quite an interesting book. Also very light read. I'd say from a business or not even a business perspective, I like people who have an entrepreneurial spirit. You don't have to be an entrepreneur to have that kind of mindset in your work. So Lean Startup is a really good book to read to kind of get you into that mindset. The one thing I like that's highlighted in the book is that the boring stuff is the most important stuff. So if you, you know, the tedious stuff that you hate doing, if you find out why you're doing that and then find out how you can be more effective and efficient at doing that, you're actually going to be more successful because the boring stuff is actually where the value is. And sometimes we kind of get stuck in always wanting to create something new, always work on the cool stuff.
1: So true. And oh man, I'm so glad you said that. Like the Lean Startup is my favorite book of all time. And I've found that at least in in, in my career, it's the book that's helped me the most. I completely agree with you that you don't have to be an entrepreneur to have an entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that bringing entrepreneurial qualities into like your normal day-to-day job almost gives you corporate superpowers. If you work in ways that are described or aligned with the lean startup principles, I think that it just makes you so much more effective, much more focused you're making learning and making progress a lot faster and as you said like it keeps you working on what other people can see as the boring things but you have that longer term perspective that keeps you motivated on doing the things on your day-to-day I love that you brought it up. Actually, I love that you mentioned that book. And how are you combining, say, the lessons from some or all of these books? Do you have any examples on how you bring those to life in a project or a situation or a deliverable, whatever you, you'd like to discuss? But if you pick some ideas from those books, how do they manifest in your life?
0: I guess it's worth saying I'm not coding on a day-to-day basis. Uh, A lot of my work is related to working with clients. And when I say clients, it might be teams of people. So the company I work for, Intellect, is a software consulting company. So essentially, we're serving many different clients in many different industries. And my role is essentially to help work with the clients to figure out how we can help them solve their problems using technology. So a lot of my work involves interacting with these people, as well as teams that engineering teams from our company. And I'd say... Some of the principles I've used to kind of create tangible activities where we can uncover information. So, for example, we have group mapping sessions, and this is something from a a different book or a different principle from Google Ventures called a design sprint. But what I've done is taken just activities from that philosophy and applied it. So, one is mapping. So you have everyone in the room. You have your executives from that company. It could be their CIO or CEO, CTO, whatever the case might be. Right down to the people on the Ground making things happen. So, for example, we did a phase with a rental car company where we had the COO and CIO in the room, but we also had the person that parks the cars at the branches. We had everyone from the organization involved in participating and it does a few things, right? The one thing is you get, everyone has the same understanding of the vision and strategy for that organization and what they're trying to achieve. Executives and the office kind of uh, teams get deep insight into what happens on the ground and um, together you kind of create a very accurate picture of how things are and how things should be or where we want to go and then we start ideating and what I found is the best ideas come from non-executives the best ideas come from people who are actually doing the work that are you know have frustrations that so I guess from a kind of solutioning perspective having that diversity in the room helps a lot. I could say it's invaluable. And those are some learnings from, again, like Sapiens, which talks about evolution. From a a buy-in perspective, when everyone's in the room and you need to roll out this new software or this new solution, you, almost all the work we do involve digital solutions, and there is a point where you need to roll that out. And I'm sure you've heard about friction in change management and getting people to adopt new ways of working. Now, simply by having people involved in the conversation from the start, you actually help that situation because the people now become champions for the solution because they were part of building it. They have ownership. I'm tied to it. So I guess that's one example of where some of these learnings were kind of put together to address a real problem. And I guess um, after those sessions, we come up with a really, I'd say really clear picture of what the solution will be. Obviously in the spirit of kind of being agile, you figure out a lot of the details. As much as you can define that vision up front and what it's going to be up front, things change. So I guess combining those philosophies, making sure everyone's on the same page with regards to building the solution is evolving it, not necessarily building it once off and leaving it and expecting it to perform well. So I guess that kind of mindset and activities we do stem from a lot of different other fields or learnings from the things I read or learn about.
1: I love it, man. That is awesome. Well done. And I'd like to uh, change tact a little bit. And I wanted to ask you about your book. I think at the moment, you're in the final stages of writing this book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book itself and how the idea came about and how the process has been I think
0: I've been speaking a bit about um, my kind of client-facing work, a big passion of mine as well as kind of education and teaching. So I've been doing a lot of talks at different conferences around the world. And about two years ago, Manning Publications contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book. Now, where that came from, kind of around 2015 or so, I saw a lot of people start talking about machine learning and AI again. And that's when it started kind of getting a little bit of attention from developers. And what I found was in South Africa, a lot of people I spoke to about the stuff I was reading online were quite hesitant to learn or look at it because they were afraid of the math. Whenever you kind of looked up something, there was a lot of math. So I kind of put together some talks which combined some of my knowledge from what I learned back at university as well as the learnings I've kind of done in my own time till then to demystify some of these topics. And the one that I was kind of talking about at the time was neural networks. And it was a talk that included almost zero math and everything was very visual, using a lot of pictures and animations and diagrams. And Like myself, I'm quite a visual learner. To be honest, I was terrible at math in university, absolutely terrible. And I only kind of appreciated some of the math after I started working with some of the AI algorithms. Anyway, I I gave some talks. Manning contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book. At first, I thought it was a scam because it was just a random <laughs> message on LinkedIn. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And then we had, yeah, we had a few Skype calls and I put together example table of contents. And yeah, I've been kind of writing that book for the last two years or so. Right now it's almost done. I'm just busy doing some copy edits. So looking for typos and things like that. So it should be finalized in the next... Week or two. And that was how the book came about. And the whole philosophy of mine behind the book is to teach AI algorithms, okay, whether it's old AI, what people consider old AI, the kind of fundamentals, right up until modern kind of uh, buzzwords like neural networks and reinforcement learning and teach all of it with as little kind of need to know the math as possible. Obviously, the more experience you get and the more difficult problems you're encountered with, you need to understand what's happening under the hood. And this builds some of that intuition, but it's a book that's illustrated quite a bit. So there's a lot of visual explanations of how things work, how things fit together, why things work a specific way. Yeah, that's basically... What my vision for the book is, it's intended to basically be something that can teach any developer or hopefully anybody about AI algorithms without having a university degree, for example.
1: I agree. I think that the book does that really well. I think it not only demystifies AI very well. But I think it does that with language that's really accessible, really clear explanations. But then what I love is the, the visuals that are all through the book. So I wanted to ask you more about that. How did you go from, as you said, being bad at maths and sort of thinking that machine learning and AI was going to be all maths? How did you go from that to being able to make illustrations that simplify complex concepts so well? And obviously, I think that in between, maybe the explanations that come in the book might be sort of an entrance step. Maybe, maybe not. Let me know. But yeah, how did you get to making the diagrams, the visuals, and get them succinct and so clear in explaining what can often be seen as really tough and complex concepts?
0: Yeah, so basically for each concept or each algorithm that we tackle, I try to go from a conceptual level. So conceptually, how does this work? Or the best way to teach something that's not new is an analogy or a metaphor, Hmm. because you can compare it to something that you already understand. So it starts off with a conceptual explanation and illustrations of what this can be associated to from a mental model perspective. So, for example, with um, ant colony optimization, that one's quite easy because you can imagine how ants work and you can draw how ants work. Maybe with reinforcement learning, I use a concept of a few examples. One is when you're training a dog, or one is when you learning that hot surfaces might be dangerous and you kind of dissect the thinking around that why why does that work what is the inputs and outputs so all the input was that I burnt myself and the output was that it hurt so maybe I shouldn't do that again so you kind of boil it down to its simple forms and then you expand on that so once someone has an understanding of the concept conceptually, then what I try and do is work through a real example of using that algorithm and then work through it step by step. What is happening at each step of this algorithm and why is it happening? And then after that's understood, you have a conceptual understanding of how things work. You have a detailed understanding of a step by step kind of uh, interactions that are happening. And then finally, you can say, well, what makes this amazing or what makes this efficient at solving this problem? problem in in a special way is some of the math. And then you can explain one or two pieces of the math behind the algorithm and why that makes it effective. And then sometimes or hopefully people have a kind of aha moment to say, okay, well, I can see why the math is necessary. I can see where it's applicable. And it kind of sets a foundation for if somebody wants to explore that algorithm or family of algorithms in more detail and become an expert in that area, they have some foundational experience with the technical concepts, including the math, to set them up to learn more of the details. And that's basically the philosophy of the book and how i've kind of laid out each of the chapters
1: that's brilliant man and what are some of the chapter topics and how did you pick them how did you order them what is the structure of the book look like Yes, the book starts with a,
0: it's something more personal to me that I wanted to include, that my editors were nice enough to let me include, but it was basically a history of technology and a section about ethics and our responsibility when building tech. So at first, it seems kind of weird that it's in a technical book, but I think later in the book, people appreciate it.
1: Is that right up front? So at the beginning of the book? Yeah, it's just a, it's okay. a small section. Start with that.
0: Because I, I think it's important. I think, um, with the kind of surge of different technologies being invented because we're at a moment in time where there's more people than ever using technology. When I say tech, it doesn't necessarily have to be coding or digital stuff. I mean, like fire is also technology, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of people doing interesting things in many different sectors. And I kind of feel like there isn't enough responsibility around the things we're building, people just building things. And uh, a lot of the time they can be used for harmful things. So I I basically just wanted people to start thinking about that before they start learning the algorithms. So when they think about how they're applying it to the work they do, there's at least a little bit of uh, ethical reasoning that comes into play when they're utilizing it. At least I hope so. That's the intent.
1: That's great. Yeah. And sorry, I interrupted you when you were telling us about the, the structure of the book.
0: No worries. Uh, yeah, so then we dive into some of the foundations of AI algorithms. We talk about search and game playing search, adversarial search, where you build algorithms that can play two player games. And then we move to nature inspired algorithms, which include genetic algorithms, and colonies particle swarms, which are based on bird flocks and bees and how they behave. I guess you could say the start of the book is the foundations. The middle is nature-inspired algorithms. And then towards the end, we have machine learning, which briefly talks about the two popular categorizations of it, regression and classification. And then we do a whole chapter on neural networks, which was heavily based on the talk. I've given quite a number of conferences around the world now. And then the final chapter is on reinforcement learning. Learning, which introduces that concept And throughout the book, each chapter covers a different example. So there might be one where you're trying to navigate a carnival to find the fastest route to each of the different rides. In another one, we're evaluating data sets of diamonds and the quality of diamonds and the pricing of diamonds. So there's quite a diversity of different examples. And the reason for that is to hopefully start sparking some ideas in the reader and they can relate it to their own projects or their own scenarios and find use cases for these different algorithms
1: that is awesome man i remember when i was going to propose to my wife i downloaded the diamonds data set and started going through it because i didn't know anything about diamonds and i was like i'm not going to be reading stuff i need some data <laughs> <laughs> so I remember spending cool. a few hours with the diamond data set and i was like oh cool now i have a, a sense for it i can go shopping now
0: <laughs> yeah and hopefully not get ripped off
1: exactly exactly Oh, that's awesome. What would you say is one of your favorite applications or use cases that you came up with during writing the writing of the book? Maybe something that surprised you as you were working through it, you came up with an explanation or a use case that you hadn't thought of before and that you found that it was quite a good fit for the book and it was, came as a surprise to you. Do anything comes to mind as a surprise during the book writing? Yeah, I'd say maybe it's because I'm a little bit biased
0: as well. I really like evolutionary algorithms. It's based on the theory of evolution. So the whole concept is is two individuals might perform averagely at something and they might mate and reproduce a child that performs much better at whatever it is. So maybe two people can't really jump that high, but they make a child that can jump really high. That's a, a basic example of how these algorithms work. I guess one surprising thing was how quickly it solved the problem that we used in the book, which was a simple knapsack kind of problem. But we threw lots huge data set at it, and it solved it quite efficiently, which I did anticipate to some extent just... I don't think it would be that efficient at doing it because to compare it, I also ran a brute force approach where I tried every combination, which took a few days to run. Whereas wow. the genetic algorithm ran in, you know, sub a second and got a, uh, I guess, 98% best result. So it didn't get the best one, but it got something almost as good in a That's fraction awesome. of the time.
1: And so, can you explain the backpack or the knapsack uh, problem for people that, that don't dine?
0: Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's a simple problem at face value. Basically, you have a knapsack or let's say a backpack that can only hold a certain weight. So my backpack can only hold 10 kilograms. And maybe I have a bunch of different objects. So I've got a can, I've got uh, maybe an iPad, a laptop, I've got a lunchbox. Basically, each of those items are valued differently. So what you try and do is fill the knapsack without violating the weight constraint. So you can't fit more than 10 kgs into the knapsack. However, you also want to maximize the value of the contents. So maybe I decide to put in my iPad and a TV and a slab of gold. That probably would violate the weight constraint. So I might have to just put in the iPad and a can and uh, a cell phone or something so that the weight constraint... Is still satisfied, but I'm still maximizing the value of the bag. And it sounds easy with uh, those few items that I mentioned, but if you start giving options that are, let's say, 50 items or 100 items or 1,000 items, and you say the knapsack can hold six tons, and you've got, and maybe we've even, uh, in, in that chapter, there's a kind of more complex example where you're allowed to put more than one of a specific item. So I could put in five iPads mm-hmm. instead of just one iPad. So you mm-hmm. can see how that simple problem becomes quite complex from a computational perspective. And that's why I was quite uh, happily surprised that the genetic algorithm solved it that quickly. Also, one thing to note maybe is um, there's a GitHub repo with all these algorithms implemented for people to have a look that comes with the book. Even if you don't have the book, you can visit the repo on my GitHub.
1: That's great. I'll send me the link and I will include it in the show notes because that'll be great. And why is the knapsack problem such a classic? problem in AI. Why is it so important and so useful when you're trying to maximize value whilst uh, minimizing, in this case, weight and working within those constraints in order to get the most value? Why would you say it's such a, a classic and important problem?
0: Yeah, I think not necessarily with AI, but with algorithms, it's quite a popular problem to use. And I guess I'd say it's popular because it's easy to relate to, which means we can intuitively understand what's happening. As opposed to imagine using, I don't know, compression, a compression, kind of how compression works as an example. You'd have to first understand that concept before you can use the example. Whereas everyone understands putting objects in a bag. I think that's one element that makes it interesting. And also what I what I mentioned just now that it's a simple problem. You're putting objects into a bag, but by introducing small constraints, the problem becomes much more difficult. And when I say it becomes difficult, what it actually means is the search space becomes way larger. If you think of a search space in that example, you could try every combination of items and try each of those to see what's maximizing the most value. And it will work. But again, it would take perhaps days, months, or years to compute that. And a lot of the AI algorithms that we use is really to work within the realm or the bounds of computing that we have. So I'd say once quantum computing becomes a reality, some of these algorithms might not be necessary. Maybe you could brute force and find the best solution in seconds, whereas in the computer architectures we're working with at the moment and CPU limitations, memory limitations, that's not really realistic. That's actually the entire point of AI algorithms to help you find good solutions in a reasonable amount of time. Otherwise, we could literally just brute force everything if computing wasn't the bottleneck.
1: Exactly right. That's awesome, man. And tell me, where did the name for the book come from?
0: Yeah, so Grokking is actually from the Grokking series uh, by Manning. And basically, the Grokking series is aimed at really understanding concepts and not necessarily understanding specific technologies. So you might find other books in in Manning's collection are centered around Java or Rust or Docker that's a specific technology or specific implementation, whereas the Grokking series is aimed at teaching concepts. So some of the other books are Grokking Algorithms, Grokking Machine Learning, or it's more teaching concepts and teaching them well in a visual way rather than teaching specific implementations. And AI Algorithms was basically the the name I came up with, because it's quite self-explanatory, the book is about AI algorithms. So yeah, just kind of crocking AI algorithms.
1: That's great. And how long have you been drawing for? I know that obviously you do comics. There's a lot of visual representations in the book. How long has that been a part of your life? Yeah, so also
0: as a kid, I guess, before I really started programming and things, I wanted to be an architect, not a software architect that I am now, or solutions architect that I am now, a, a building architect. And yeah, there was a lot of drawing involved there, kind of always liked drawing. But I've never, I guess, pursued it from a what academic or learning perspective, just kind of draw to relax. And I guess also part of my work, I really believe that Humans, our core, are visual learners and visual thinkers. If you're in a meeting or you're speaking to somebody, you might be saying similar words, but often we have different mental models. And I'm a strong believer in that put those mental models on a whiteboard or put it down on a picture. Even if you think you're bad at drawing, just draw boxes and arrows and stuff, and it helps create that shared understanding. So I guess I really, I guess I like drawing because it helps you represent ideas or teach ideas or kind of highlight what you're thinking in a a common way. It's like a common language. That's more concise than verbal language, I think.
1: Definitely. That's fantastic. And after this book is done, do you think you have another book in you?
0: Yeah, I think it's been a long time, but I must say I'm quite appreciative of the journey. I've learned a lot while working with a lot of the people at Manning especially Bert Bates. He has been my kind of mentor. He's written many, many books in his career, and I learned a lot from him. So I think um, this journey has been a bit long because I was also learning along the way. I think if I, yeah, let me get done. I do have some ideas for some other interesting projects, but I'll probably take a little bit of a break before I I tackle those. One is around what I've been speaking about, kind of visual language. I think it would benefit a lot of people to understand how to diagram better or what diagrams or visual representations could be useful in different scenarios. So that's one that I'm thinking about. And another one would be, yeah, I was thinking about the average person might be a person in, I don't know, management role, or it might be your mom and dad. How do you explain technology to them? How do you explain what's happening on the screens and computers to them in a visual way as well? So they get it. So that's also something I might take a look at.
1: I love it. That would be great. Mate, that is awesome. Before we wrap up, tell me, where can people find you online?
0: Yeah, uh, you can go to my website. uh, It's com, Or I guess if you search for me in most platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, you'll be able to find me with my name. It's quite a unique name.
1: Awesome. Richelle, thanks so much for making the time, man. This was brilliant. Uh, Thanks for writing the book. I look forward to um, the last couple of chapters coming online, but the, the rest of the book has been awesome. So yeah, great work on the book in the last two years, man. Awesome effort.
0: Thanks, Felipe. Thanks a lot for having me.
1: that brings this episode to conclusion thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on facebook twitter linkedin or instagram as datafuturology also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.